This is the Positive Psychology Podcast, episode 114. Welcome to the Positive Psychology Podcast, bringing your earbuds the science of the good life. And now, your host, Kristen Trumpy. Okay, I'm a professor in the School of Psychology uh, at Keele University in the United Kingdom. I'm currently a professorial research fellow, which means I simply research all the time, uh, 24 hours sometimes a day. Uh, effectively, my research interests are primarily in trust, although I do work on loneliness, also do disclosure processes, also legal issues. Uh, I have a wide variety of interests uh, besides trust, but trust does keep me busy. All right. So trust is one of these things that I suspect everybody has their personal definition. But how do you define trust or is there an agreed upon definition of trust in the research community? Well, I begin the book with that. I mean, the uh, the new the new book, The Psychology of Interpersonal Trust. Actually, I began also the other book as well, The Psychology of Trust. The thing is, is that trust is a very frequently used uh, word in the English language. I mean, it, it's really quite quite amazing uh, because the, I can't give you the precise. It was like 2000th rating, but that included the and on and everything else in between. Uh, the thing about that is, is that because it's so prevalent in our society and a usage in our society, people do often acknowledge how important it is. And we have a sense of how important it is in our, our lives. On the other hand, because we have such a strong sort of notion of it, there's strong intuitive ideas, and many of those ideas about them do differ among people and among actual researchers. Now, the approach that I use is called the BDT for short, Basis, Domains, and Targets. It's a very structured framework, um, which I can tell you about, which we may end up getting about anyways. It allows me to understand and sometimes predict how trust functions uh, in human behavior. Do you want me to talk about that a bit more, Kirsten? Yes, please do so. Okay, well, there are basically three three, uh, bases of trust. One is reliability, which is what actually Rotter, uh, Julian Rotter, referred to as keeping one's promises of word. The other one is basically honesty, which is a bit more wide uh, ranging than you might think. It's whether, of course, whether you tell the truth rather than post a lying, but it's also the idea of genuine versus ingenuine communications and benign versus maligning, you know, uh, uh, communications. And finally, emotional trust, which is really trust in others to refrain from causing emotional harm, refrain from harming a person. That is usually by accepting their disclosures, by keeping them confidential. Those are crossed over three different, uh, actually, domains. One which is beliefs, which is what usually people talk about. Uh, effectively, these are your beliefs along those lines. You believe other people keep promises and so forth and so on, and have feelings about that affect. The other one is what we call behavior-dependent trust, which is depending on others to act in that fashion depending on others who keep their promises, for example. And finally, really, trust in acting, which is what we often talk about as trustworthiness, which is the extent to which a person uh, really, in a sense, enacts or carries out those behaviors in their interactions. That's also, in a sense, crossed with uh, very, uh, very uh, specific target qualities, 
one of which is uh, basically specificity or generalize, generalizability. That is the extent to which you're talking about a specific person versus a general others. And also familiarity is verging, ranging from uh, somewhat unfamiliar to very familiar. With this framework, I'm able to really encapsulize and bring together a huge amount of research on trust. And it links them all together. There are very specific combinations of how these relations actually work among these different bases and domains and, and so forth. The one other fact I forgot to mention that, by the way, I guess I'm, I am human, is the idea of reciprocity. One of the guiding principles underlining this approach is the idea that trust is often reciprocal. That is what we do is when we basically trust others, it is to some extent reciprocated. And that causes each of these different domains, beliefs, uh, behavior dependent trust and trust in acting. Uh, and this really, in a sense, causes people to have a sort of a history of trusting relations or untrusting relations, depending on how those interactions emerge. So that gives you more or less in a sense a summary of that particular approach. Wow, that that is rich. Let's unpack that. Now, before we get into that, when I hear a lot that people say, you know, I um, I trust someone after some, you know, a specific time, or basically they have to earn my trust. And yeah. I, I used to, I, I mean, I, I understand that sentiment, but I kind of deviate from it in my real life. And here's why I'll just give you a little bit of context. In my other life, I uh, also work in a bank, and I train young people. And I had this notion that, you know what, what if I trusted them from day one? Uh, what if I assumed that they were good people, uh, that they selected young people who were interested and smart and had integrity? And what I what I learned was basically that within like, I don't know, a time frame of like eight or nine years, um, about between 15 and 20 individuals, they truly worked to basically maintain that trust. I never had trust problems Although I didn't follow this adage of, you know, having someone earn your trust. Now, of course, I had to check certain things that they did that they didn't know how to do, you know, procedural things. But other yeah. than that, I'm not, you know, very controlling. So I was just wondering, does that fit into the framework that you just spoke to? Or is that uh, just a random anecdote that no, no, no. It's effectively probably quite accurate. I mean, we develop trusting relations with others, and the ways we do those is exactly as it is largely through reciprocity, but effectively is, is that you have to think of the three different uh, basically bases of trust. So, did they keep their word or promise to you? That's how they earn their trust. You're, you're, you know, you're trusting them. Uh, and so, if they say they're going to do something, uh, did they carry it out? Uh, also, is emotional trust. If you basically told them something important, personal, uh, personal information in the bank, did they maintain confidentiality of it? And also, were they honest, for example? Did they uh, basically convey the truth about the situation? I'm sure with finances, that's, that's something you have to be concerned about. So all of these, you, they may have, you may have had an initial trust in them, but and they maintain those expectations you know, towards you. Some didn't, of course. Some may have violated their promises. Some may have been slightly dishonest, and some may have actually revealed something you didn't want uh, them to reveal. All those would erode your trust in them. So, in a sense, really, the final aspect of this is not only have all these bases and, and you know, basically beliefs and behaviors, but they unfold over the course of time. Right. So, so you're saying that if we 
pay attention to those three bases of trust. We can build it. Um, does that mean I'm just I'm just this just occurred to me. For example, if I would want to build a robot that elicits trust, could I basically program that robot to respect those three things and trust would have to emerge? Or is there something intangible or something that's unexplained by the research? Or what do you think of that proposition? Well, I, oddly enough, there is a publication. I haven't read it. I just came across it. It cited some of my work recently. I think either can you trust robots or you, ro can robots trust you? But essentially, you could actually program a robot to respond to those sorts of things. So if the robot would say, because there's a statement of intention, so the robot would say, I'm going to do this. And it's your trust in the robot, okay, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, you can tell, given instructions, and I imagine actually trusting it could be perfect, if you will. Uh, never necessarily tell you a lie. It probably does basically what it, what it says it will do, and it will keep the information confidential as, pres as prescribed by you. Now, the other way around is an interesting situation where the robot will trust you is an interesting question. And you could probably program a robot, I imagine, to respond to those features of your behaviors. Uh, and therefore, I'm trusting you. Now, the only thing I haven't emphasized, I went over very quickly, is that there is an effective component to trust. Now, it's one of the things which is under-examined, but is part of the framework. It's part of the belief system that you have. Because you can have this gut feelings about trusting. You can also have some gut feelings about when your trust is violated. It's not without uh, affect. Indeed, it, it, it is. In fact, if people have their trust violated, there are rate. Uh, there's a lot of emotion attached to it. So in actuality, it is linked to emotionality, both affective experiences and linked to other emotions. Uh, something we don't actually examine often, uh, although there has been studies on it. All right. So could you speak to the benefits of trust, um, both for the person who gives trust to someone else, so to speak, and someone who experiences trust? Well, mostly, uh, well, okay. By and large, we work mostly from beliefs about people about trusting others. Much of the work is on trusting beliefs and some minor on affect. By and large, trusting is associated with a psychological adjustment. That is, people who are more more trusting generally are better off and make it simple. Uh, they are less lonely, for example, they're more socially engaged. In older people, for example, in one of the primarily by, by barefoot, they find it in fact predicts longevity. Okay, in older people. Uh, health actually is one of the correlates, but longevity is one of the particulars of trust. So people are more trusting or more, as you might want to use in your own psychology, more positive about the world. They have that perspective and they approach, approach interactions in that way. There's lots of reasons for this. But what I do want to call, in, indicate in, in recent, in which we've worked on this now for some time, is that there are limits to trusting uh, in terms of its adjustment. Because we find that people too trusting, very trusting, do show some problems. And if you do, you want to hear that, Kirsten? Of course, of course. I mean, basically, we have been working with children, and we've just been working now with adults to look at. We can find these curvilinear relations, because these are what we call quadratic relations, curvilinear. So mostly, what you were talking about in this research is they look at linear. So the more trusting you are, the more you adjust it. For example. Uh, and you can find those, of course, as I mentioned, the linear correlational measures are often linear. But you go for what we call curvilinear, and particularly quadratic. 
So what happens is, is you find that individuals increase uh, in the trusting correlates increase, uh, but they actually go down. And, you know, there's a decrement when you be too high in trusting. And we found this in children in particular uh, from the first studies. They are more rejected by peers. Uh, they're very too, too trusting. Uh, the more, uh, well, they also show poor psychological adjustment over time, for example. Uh, they're, less, uh, they're less perceived, they're less accepted by peers. We did one study really actually in the playground, which showed this behaviorally. In fact, uh, children who are too, too high trusting, is very high trusting, is very, very low in trusting, uh, would tend to show greater direct aggression towards their uh, peers in the playground. Uh, girls in particular, it was shown that you could find that very high trusting and low trusting, too, very high trusting, very low trusting, were basically also more, showed more, more indirect aggression. They were also more rejected by peers in terms of their bids and less likely to interact with their peers. Uh, and also they showed more distress. This is all in the playground, by the way, through observations. We think there's lots of reasons for this. We think in large part, of course, low-trusting individuals have some different problems, various problems, as I mentioned. They probably don't socially engage as much. They show a variety of maladaptive behaviors. But those high, very high-trusting are also at risk for really betrayal, and probably not to use a dramatic term, probably disappointment. They expect their peers to be very, very trusting, trustworthy, and they fall short of those expectations, and they show various degrees of, of maladjustment, including some degrees of frustration and anger, uh, distress uh, in terms of the interactions. So although, by and large, trust, trusting and trust beliefs are an advantage, we have to think about the, the possibility, in fact, we do have evidence of the possibility that they could lead to maladjustment. In the most recent study that I'm now just revising, we find that in older adults as well, at least trust in their care providers and nursing homes. Two very high trusting show some problems and adjustment to the uh, nursing home which they're residing. So hopefully that summarizes the sum up for you, uh, uh, Kristen. Yeah, absolutely. That's fascinating. Two things I want to... Um talk about what you just said one is um people sometimes there's this notion right that that people who are too trusting are also kind of dumb um i'm not saying this by the way i'm just saying there is this notion i'm not saying that's my opinion right. um is there do, are you aware of any research in terms of like you know is, is there some kind of iq that uh, correlation well, to that or is that not just correlated with iq the trust beliefs we've only had one or two studies where we've had iq uh, actually associated, deceive associated with, with trust. It's not as such. Uh, now, social intelligence is another matter, but how this actually, this concern about being too trusting did begin with Julian Rotter, or Rotter, I, again, I apologize by saying his name incorrectly. He was the one who actually helped me begin doing my own research. But he argued that there was no deficits in terms of being too trusting. In fact, those who were very high in trusting were not more gullible but the problem, Kirsten, is that when he did the, he looked at a variety of studies, it was American psychologist in 1980, if you want to know the precise uh, reference for this. Now, what he suggested was, is he did what he called median split. So he did the below the mean and above the mean and compared these high and low trusters on a variety of tests of kind of gullibility. And what he concluded was, is there was really no difference between the two when there was some reason to be suspicious about someone. 
so that in fact his argument was is very to being too trusting or high trusting is not a deficit and does not associate with gullibility. However, what I have not done yet is look at these curvilinear relationships, which is how the study should have been examined. Because if you do a median split, you just really don't get those very high trusting individuals and you can't directly assess those. So, in fact, I developed this sort of look at curvilinear or quadratic relations in response to Rotter. We don't know precisely if the data that, if the, we haven't been able to reanalyze that data to see if there's curvilinear relations that exist, although that would be something to have done or to do in the future. Right. Okay. So just for those listeners who are not into statistics, um, you kind of mentioned it, but I just want to emphasize this once again. The the study, the old study from 1980 basically looked at averages. Um, so on average, even high trusting individuals are not found, were not found to be gullible. However, there are outliers, right? So there are people who are incredibly trusting. And because we do av when we do averages, we don't know, right? So what you're saying is that basically we need to do research where we look at the outliers um, and then that's see right. if the gullibility changes. Yeah. Pardon? That is, Kirsten. I mean, what it is is that if you just divide them up into two, right, at a median or yeah. mean, you right. issues, yeah. and you have low and high, what you really need to get at is not just those divisions, but look at way up in the frame, uh, you know, the higher in this trust beliefs of the two trusting. I don't call them outliers because that would be more statistical in nature. It's just really looking at very, very high trusting. When you look at that, which is what these studies do, then that that is important to examine. And to my knowledge, we haven't done that with gullibility yet. Although it's fascinating. I, really, I mean, these, this, these studies were done so long ago, it would be very difficult to retrieve them and reanalyze the data. I imagine, because we've done really in the 1970s. Yeah, of course, yeah. But in future, we, we really need to do that. Uh, as I said, I have a publication out uh, which really really sort of addresses this issue. It basically asks whether trust is always good. And, of course, the idea here is, is that trust is not always good. Uh, and particularly probably because in the world around us, it's not completely trustworthy. And if you have very high trust beliefs, you can be in trouble. And I think intuitively people understand that, I imagine. That is true. Now, I want to go back just um, something you said a few minutes ago when you said basically that people um, who are, are better off generally, of course, not ridiculously trusting, not not trusting with no reason, but basically people who have more trust in the world are overall better off. I was wondering, um, do you have any information on social background? And the reason I'm asking this is actually that I just very recently had an experience where me and someone I met, um, we ended up going, uh, we met at an airport in Paris and we ended up exploring Paris because this person had never been and she, it was always her dream. And it was a happy accident that we could do that because we were supposed to be on a, on a different flight. And this person was from Nicaragua and she was nonstop worrying about everything. And I was just like, no, we'll be fine. You know, I'm, I've traveled a lot. I'll make sure that we go to the hotel and that we won't be, you know, that we won't end up in some dangerous place. And one yeah. part of my confidence was basically that I've traveled a lot and I've done these things. Um, I'm European, so I'm ha I know how these cities work. But another part is also that I'm, that I'm just from a ridiculously privileged country where people do not overall rob and murder each other as opposed to what she sadly has to experience and i was just wondering do you have any information about that because it seems like a, apart from like a lot of other 
things that you get when you when you grow up in a rough country or a rough neighborhood that you know are these low is there low trust generalized or are they still quite a lot of differentiation even among places Mm. like that it's that's difficult to answer but it it does bear on the issue of trustworthiness in that in the the bdt trustworthiness of people uh, is an issue in fact i saw again i didn't take complete notice of this but there was a thing on the internet about the most corrupt nations the countries and countries do vary of course on how trustworthy people are um and it's difficult to appraise. I don't know how this particular how this was derived on the internet. I was just an observation and and some sort of note. But I would be quite confident in saying that there are considerable differences in the trustworthiness of people across countries, and that's where you know. Uh, Maybe the inflection point at which you can trust is different depending on which country you come from. You know, you get to be too trusting, it could be a problem. Uh, and we, we, you're quite true. We, perhaps, uh, for better or for worse, we have a relatively trustworthy country in the UK. Uh, sometimes when we go abroad, we find it's not shared by other, other cultures in terms of the trustworthiness. Uh, and indeed, also, we can also consider the fact that you are a foreigner and you're also a target of, the, of these particular actions. You know, it can be exploited. Um, but at any rate, I, I, again, we, the odd thing is we don't know a huge amount about trustworthiness as such. The bulk of the work has really been done on trust, trust beliefs. And uh, some of the earlier work, oddly enough, was done with trustworthiness in children. We haven't carried that, you know, that more, more systematically forward in terms of looking at different cultures. I uh, that's probably all I can tell you. We have looked at cross cultures and trust beliefs, and also in trusting, somewhat trusting interactions with children at some of our publications. We find that we've, we've had children from Japan, Italy, and also the UK in our studies. We had looked at cross cultural patterns. Most of the patterns were similar across those three countries, actually, although there were some, uh, you know, cultural differences in terms of it. Uh, there was somewhat less reciprocity in the Japanese culture, I think, uh, children than in other cultures. But cultural differences are difficult to interpret, uh, you know, Kristen, uh, at the best of times. But it's something so to be examined. All right. Okay, cool. So now we talk mostly about yeah, trust beliefs and mostly individuals. Now, I'd like to shift more to maybe larger groups and organizations. Um, are the benefits of trust similar um, when it comes to larger groups? Meaning that do do larger groups... So, for example, a person lives longer if... That's one of the benefits you said, right? Yes. Um, yeah. Can you say that an organization maybe exists longer if there's more of a culture of trust? Or can you speak to... Well, bigger groups and organizations and, and how they differ in terms of trust. The terms that they use are called social capital. That's particularly this is sociologists use this term, although it's also found in psychology. Their argument is is that in a sense trust is very beneficial. It trust really promotes cooperative behavior among people, uh, between them, uh, the their familiar others and even unfamiliar others, and increases productivity within a country. Uh, we have at least some evidence that that's the case. I don't think it's as strong as evidence, but uh, yes, uh, most countries do benefit from what they call social capital, people being highly trusting in each other. 
And in fact, the one thing that is associated with it, longitudinally fine and otherwise, is trust is associated with cooperative behaviors, what we call prosocial behavior, if you know that term. Do you know the term, Chris? Yes, yes, uh, I do. So but but by all means, just mention it just real quickly for our listeners. Yeah. Yeah, pro-social behavior is any really positive behavior towards others. It's engaging in helping, aiding, uh, you know, any form of assistance you can provide. Uh, and trust is really intrinsically very strongly associated with uh, pro-social behavior. We find that in children across time. Uh, we find, in fact, it's probably predictive of pro-social behaviors, but also pro-social behaviors feed back into trust. Uh, you can think about pro-social interactions uh, fostering a degree of trusting between people. And as such, it's a reciprocal process. So generally, the idea is that social capital is important. And what's happening in current days is what people would regard as a risk of social capital. Anytime we start actually deteriorating trust within neighbors, even within politicians, within leaders, uh, within our culture in general, we're detracting from social capital. We should detract from productivity and well, cooperation and productivity. Yes, let's get into that. Um, politics huge. A uh, lot of countries, not the, just the U.S. and the U.K., are going through uh, tumultuous times. There's also Brazil, there's Poland, there's India, and th those are just the ones that I know. Um, there are probably a lot of other ones, I think. Um, so can you speak more to... That you have a chapter in your book about politics and trust. Can we expand on that, please? Yes. Oh, where can we begin on that? My goodness. Uh, <laughs> again, I've written a few besides the chapter in this book. Um, and again, I, the textbook even elaborates on that more, uh, Kirsten, if you get a chance. It's a bit on more the dear side of things. It's the, called The Psychology of Interpersonal Trust. I'm sorry if I plugged this book. Um, effectively, it, it is more academic approach than the one that, that was attributed uh, in, you know, Psychology of Trust. And it's hopefully, if you get a chance to read it, I hope you do. I hope yeah. people do. Yeah. Uh, well, let me begin. I mean, <clears throat> the, the point, one of the things that they make a distinction of, and I always come back to this distinction, is between trust in the democratic process and trust in any given party. And also through the BDT, I can make that distinction, but also I can make the distinction between trust in any given uh, party or leaders or local leaders and so forth. So you can talk about trust on many levels, and that's really what you need to do. What people often experience is conflict sometimes. It's conflict and trust between these different elements of their political uh, environments. So sometimes they might not trust the leader, but they trust the party. Or they may trust the local leader, you know, the local politician and not others. Uh, we do make differentiations among these for sure. Um, sadly enough, we, I, I, people have talked about having crises in trust. Uh, I do begin the book with that discussion. <laughs> I'm not sure what crisis necessarily means. But certainly there's been some challenges to trust in current times in politicians, as you probably are aware. Uh, they have tracked some politicians and found that much of what they convey to people is not factual. They track them. They book their local fact finders. And they find in, indeed that they're not being honest about this information. That's one thing that actually has, has actually emerged. Uh, what would you like to know, Kirsten, about, about the politics? It just maybe be more specific about this. It's a very, very broad topic. I agree. Um, I think people, a lot of people feel very hopeless um that's something that i hear a lot 
Some people are very, specifically in the U.S., are perhaps very energized about the election next year, but others might be thinking, well, what if nothing changes? And I, the U.S. is at the top of my mind simply because of its role in our world. Um, yeah. And also because the majority of the listeners of this podcast live in the U.S. I think for me, I'm particularly interested in, I like the distinction that you said, talking about different kinds of trust in the, in the political party or in the democratic process. I think I'm really interested in what can people do um, to infuse the process of politics with trust based on that model that you talked about. Well, there is one study that does, does suggest that trust is associated with a form of political activism, that being more involved in voting, more involved in being part of the parties, uh, in more, how can I say, more within uh, conventional ways of dealing with the, with the political, uh, political arena. So that if you are trusting, then you will be likely to vote and you're more likely to somehow be active. Right. Uh, in fact, political cynicism is the opposite of that. And in fact, if you're politically cynic, then you are tend to be uh, protest, but outside of the conventional realm of politics. So, I mean, there is an aspect. And I do actually concern about political cynicism, which I think is becoming a bit more prevalent. One of the really strong studies in this field suggests that we've been declining, particularly the U.S. has been declining in trust over uh, since 1950s, they've tracked it. Now, trust wasn't measured very well necessarily. I have some debates about that. But actually, it suggests that we're consistently declining in trust. It's one of the very strong studies in the field. Two of the things that they point to are really important in considering it. One was trust was, was boosted by uh, you know dealing external relations, uh, military actions, success in dealing with foreign intruders, dealing with international relationships, and so on. Uh, trust was declined, decreased really in response to economic situations. When economics declined, especially substantively, then there was a decline in trust. And also some of the real, um, how can I say, it, uh, controversies, uh, the, I can use the term Clinton here, the, the Clinton affair uh, did actually was associated with the coin and trust, for example, in politicians, with all due respect to uh, Bill Clinton. Um, they do go through these things. But the real worrisome component of this is the trust is continuously declining. And the question really comes, is it going to also affect democracy? Are people going to sound now withdraw from democratic processes because they no longer trust uh, the democracy or the politicians besides? Uh, I do put that in my book, as a, uh, this last book, as a, as a more of a query and a basic concern because, of course, I support democracies maximally. Uh, and you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I honestly don't. And if I knew, perhaps <laughs> this would be a different show, and they would make me a po politician. But uh, I don't know what the outcome is going to be, Kristen. But I do. I am concerned. Right. So one thing that I that I'm concerned about is the fact that all these measures of trust. I'm I'm a big fan of all of these things, and I think a lot of these things are long term solutions. And actually. I did a, uh, an episode on democracy, um, I think in April, and and that was also kind of my argument. Basically, you know, no matter what party you are in, you should work on strengthening things like making sure that the that the elections are fair, that there's no voter suppression, that there are no like gerrymandered 
lines which favor one group over another and things like that one thing that i am personally kind of scared about is and and also ask myself and i truly have no answer to this is it when in the light of things being urgent all right so something urgent happens where you're like oh my god we've crossed a line in terms of let's say human rights or also the environment um the the processes of trust that are needed are kind of too slow. So in your opinion, are there justified situations where where the long-term work of building trusting relationships and trusting trustworthy institutions where we might have to kind of put that on the back burner to, for more immediate measures? You know, let's say the, the rainforest is burning at a... Yeah. Very scary rate, right? So so one thing to solve that would probably be to kind of get the whole world community involved and to kind of make everybody understand um how how the rainforest, the the Brazilian rainforest contributes to the worldwide um environment altogether, but that's kind of it's like we don't have time for that. Do you know what I mean? Well, I mean there's a difference between trust and and, and action. <laughs> so I mean, trust is one dimension, and so cooperative action is another. Uh, certainly, they are intertwined. <laughs> you can still take your own action without necessarily being high and trusting. Um, you do have to trust that your actions will eke out the benefits that you want. I know that I, some people don't want to give to charities because they're concerned that the charity may not use the money towards the goal they want to, don't want them to. Um, the thing we don't know in the East about almost, and it's really quite odd, is how to build trust. Um, there are some suggestions of literature. Again, it's in the book, as you hopefully looked at. Uh, there's issues of uh, how to develop rapport with individuals, which is a more immediate kinds of trust that you can establish. Uh, there's also issues in terms of uh, degree to which you can have trust between nations in terms of, well, you can have, uh, in fact, one of the things I suggested and one of my things is based on Osgood's uh, reciprocal process. Uh, uh, really in, intervention where you sort of really try and have a gradual reduction in tensions by being co- cooperative and hoping the other nation follows and so forth. You have to look at the cooperative uh, procedures that he promotes. promotes. Um, uh, and generally, in fact, we, we don't there's a variety of things they now do between nations, which are sort of more brief cooperative ventures, which you can use to promote trust between individual nations. Um, and I suggest actually this one to talk about North Korea and the U.S. It's one of my uh, articles and conversations. I mean, we do know some things about it, but the odd thing is, despite all that we've been approaching, we don't, we, we're not entirely sure how to promote trust and how that actually could come about. So I have, there's variety of suggestions, and unfortunately, there's not a lot of work in the field. Uh, that sounds odd, Kirsten, but again, uh, you would think a lot of this work would have been done, but we have not done it. I find uh, that's actually the whole reason of the existence of positive psychology, that there are all these things which are absolutely vital to to living a meaningful and, and somewhat even just yeah. adequate life, not even great life that are completely under-researched. So this does not surprise me at all. No, well, I, I almost had the struggle to actually write that chapter for the book. And I did a very comprehensive search of that. Uh, and, and unfortunately, I had to make a much ado about rather little to try and make a substantial 
a case about how to start developing trust. As I talked about before, the BDT does prescribe a little bit how these things can unfold. And in my own studies, actually, we did develop trust in people by having them engage in what we call the uh, prison dilemma game, which has been one of the conventional ways of, of, of uh, developing trust. And, and every time they would take kind of, for example, a cooperative risk, it was reciprocated by another person. And that led to most people in an increase in trusting relations over time. Very simple. Uh, it wasn't found in all of them. In fact, people who were lonely didn't actually show the same pattern as that. They didn't develop trust in the same in the same way as people who were not lonely, which gives us insight into loneliness, for example. Uh, so we have a little bit of an insight into these things, but not much, Kristen. Uh, sad to say. All right. Okay. So is there anything that you feel is important about trust that we didn't touch upon? I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are tons of things that are interesting, but just something that spontaneously springs to mind where you're like, we should mention that before we sign off. No, the one thing you did kind of ask, actually, which I didn't address, and I kept it in mind, we also don't know as much about being trusted in terms of these uh, interactions. Although we talk about, when I looked at, um, uh, again, marital relations, which is, is still a paper we haven't quite published yet, uh, dyadic patterns occur. So trusting becomes more synchronized as couples tend to become, you know, you know over time, more closer relationships. But, uh, and presumably, they, they do, they work as a dyad. In fact, some of the work we have is really called dyadical, dyadic reciprocal trusting, which is really something to be uh, be concerned with. And in this instance, it is does go a type of trust building. We don't know how the dyads quite form. But a dyadic trusting is essential to uh, interpersonal interactions. It's common across cultures and certainly is quite common within close relationships. So I just wanted to, uh, to respond to one of your other questions. That is actually a very uplifting way to end it, to kind of know that that there are certain fundamentals of trust which, at least so far, seem to be universally true. That's actually good news both on an individual level, but also kind of in terms of from a perspective of peace or something like that. So that's good to know. Well, the general the general principle, if you want to end the thing, is that we we think that the BDT, and in, in, as again, it's my my framework, is is uh, cross cultural, is international. The particulars of these things within within the context in which these things occur, these principles must vary from culture to culture, of course. But the fundamental principles, perhaps, we I believe, in fact, from this framework, are the same. That's good to know. So, where can people find you and your work in? Oh, okay. Well, obviously, the for more public, if you want, the Psychology Trust book, it would be, it, it's uh, hopefully straightforward and quite readable. If you're a bit more academically inclined, you can look at, it just, it's just coming out in two more, two, three more days, I guess, the 25th, uh, is the Psychology of Interpersonal Trust. So for the person more scholarly or academically oriented. But they're both by Rutledge Press. The first one is a little more affordable for people who just want to, to read it. It's just, I think, 10 pounds. I'm not too sure what it goes in the U.S. Uh, but it hopefully will give an introduction to people who want to know about it. Uh, it's the best best uh, product I can I can, I can yield for, for the public at large. And the other one is an academic. It's also by Rutledge Press. So if you want to read it, I hope that you choose to do so. Um, before we leave, can I just say thank you for that? Because... There is, when I studied psychology very early on, I sometimes got a bit frustrated with how much great knowledge there is and how many academics just kind of stay exclusively in the academic realm, just basically talking to each other. So whenever somebody actually 
publishes a research-informed book that's readable for, you know, regular, non-academic folks, I'm just very grateful. So, so thanks for, for having done that. Oh, well, thank you very much, uh, Chris, and thanks for the interview. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Ken Rottenberg. Um, I just wanted to recap real quickly the main model that he talked about because I think he he's so he's so in the middle of all of this that I think he went past it quite quickly. So the model is called basis, domain, and dimension framework (BDT), and according to the BBT, trust is made up of reliability, emotional trust, and honesty. So just for you to recap, um, those are the main things. And when you want to think about trust in a more systematic way, I suggest you do that using his framework. All right, so let's get into the reviews. Here's a very uh, short and sweet one from XKOC from the US. And it says meets the very high expectations that the title and ratings imply. Listen for five minutes and you'll see what I mean. Well, thank you very, very much. That is a nice statement to make. The next one is by someone called JPC29714 from the UK. And it says resentment is causing anger and I'm clouded by negativity looking for daily tools. Um, I don't know if you're still listening, JPC, but if you are, I think the, the shortest and most precise thing I can tell you about this issue is to really drill down on attention and what you give attention to and what you believe is true. Um, in short, in a nutshell, because I don't have the time right now to really get into it more deeply, you want to get into the habit of being aware of what you're thinking and focusing at any given moment. Because our, our brain is basically processing thousands or millions of inputs. Some of these inputs are positive, some of them are negative, and, and a lot of them are very neutral. So sometimes, sure, we have to focus on the negative. If somebody's beating you up um, or screaming at you, there is no point in noticing the, the wonderful wallpaper, right? Um, that is evident. But in largely throughout our life, we're not in situations like that. And, and then the question is, are we focusing on things that make us powerless and that we can't find solutions to right now? And if the answer is yes, um, I know it is hard because I've gone through these things myself, but the answer is we have to get into the habit of, of being like, okay, these feelings are valid, but is there anything new that I can learn from them right now? If not, um, you sit with them a moment and then allow them to go on and, and to kind of like a cloud to just move on to something else because our brain does not necessarily just want to stick with the same thing all the time. Alternatively, if you find this hard, um, I might suggest the reverse approach. So if you're like, okay, your brain is like, no, 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 we will focus on this forever and ever, then you set yourself like a reverse meditation. So you'll just try to focus on the horrible thing for, um, for a very long time. And then every time you deviate, you're like, nope, nope, nope. And what I hope this, this exercise does is it shows you that your brain actually 
um, jumps around quite a bit. And once you get used to that happening, you can either choose to cultivate mindfulness and awareness of, of, you know, more neutral states and more positive states, or you can at least use those jumps to kind of sit on that d- train that's going in a different direction and try that. Um, having said that, I am afraid that probably if you're in the state you're in, you might also need um, additional things, um, additional help. You know, maybe um, therapy would be good for you. If you can't afford therapy, look into um, apps in the app store, um, which do these kind of things, or sometimes you can get online therapy, which is, um, cheaper. Um, if you, if it's a financial issue, you can Google sliding scale therapy and see if there's something available. Um, because overall it's probably a longer journey. And if you're already in a very dark place, sometimes it's just better to have someone who you can share these things with and who can, point out to you the things that you are yet unable to spot in yourself um, and your thinking. Um, Good luck, by the way. Um, Here's someone who says, um, DRSRSR from the UK, and it says, tech tips, very helpful. Um, Can he, he, can he stop gesticulating with the microphone when he talks? Okay, so my microphone is pretty heavy, so I'm not a rapper, uh, while I'm podcasting at least, uh, so I'm not waving it around. All the people who are sitting here and the only thing you can focus on is how annoyed you are that the production quality is bad, I suggest you either send me the money so that I can uh, go to a professional studio or respectfully reappraise the things you give priority to. Because it's kind of like you are listening to someone who is giving their spare time, their free time. Just let me know, like, like just for your information, I don't earn a lot of money doing this. Like I can barely sometimes cover the fees it takes to host that. And if some, if people who are used to freebies, getting everything for free on the internet, come with their helpful tech tips. I struggle to take it very seriously because to me, that's an attitude of entitlement. And please don't get me wrong. If, if someone's like, hey, um, do this, do that. It's a little thing. It can make, it can make your podcast better. I have no problem with that. I have a problem with this shitty entitlement attitude where you surf around the internet, get everything for free, and then tell people how to make it better and compare it with productions which have a budget of thousands or millions. That, that is just idiotic. And I'm sorry, I, I feel like sometimes people need a bit of a reality check and not always just, oh, let me take the high road and say thank you very much for your tech tips, all right? So yeah, if if that kind of thing annoys you, I respectfully suggest that you just go to a podcast which is produced by people who do nothing else, who, who where that's their full-time job and their production quality will be perfect. All right, and now let's close with a wonderful message from Isabella. She said, Dear Kristen, I just wanted to say thank you for getting me interested in positive psychology. I had already been studying psychology for two years by the time I came across your podcast, but I have never even heard of positive psychology at university. I fell in love with the topic immediately. That's the kind of philosophy I want to devote my work as a future psychologist to. There was no positive psychology master's program at my uni. However, I am writing my master thesis in positive psychology, which is really exciting. I also want 
to specialize in positive psychology related stuff once I graduate. So thanks for doing your amazing podcast. I honestly wouldn't be going in this direction without it. All the best and greetings from Austria. Isabella, um, wow, that is wonderful, wonderful news. Um, that is so great to hear. And I think I wrote you that in an email, but I would still actually be really interested in what you chose to do your master thesis on. So if you have a moment, just jump on Twitter or send me an email um, and let me know what you're doing for your master thesis. All right, everyone. Um, have a good week. Oh, oh, and before I forget it, um, I wanted to make this podcast a bit more inclusive. Specifically, there are around 500 million people who are deaf or hard of hearing in this world. And for this reason, I've started to create transcripts um, of the podcast. And now with the newer episodes, what I do is the, the transcripts are basically just in the file. So when you click on it, you can see them, you can scroll down. Um, and if you have any hard of hearing friends who who you th who you think would benefit from this information just let them know that so far i've i've transcribed about 10% of the podcast episodes and i am i am getting on it but it's something that um it costs um a bit of time and and a bit of money so i'm i can't do everything at the same time but uh, I'm working on it with the help of a very helpful service. All right. So have a wonderful week and talk to you another time. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help us out by sharing it with your network and leaving a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher. We would love to hear from you at kristen at strengthphoenix.com. For show notes and more, head over to www.strengths.com. P-H-O-E-N-I-X dot com. Thanks for listening to the Positive Psychology Podcast. We're saying goodbye with Happy Yogurt.